Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its new publications. If you have any suggestions on authors or books who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Mariana Moglovich to talk about her book, The Invention of Public Space, Designing for Inclusion in Lindsay's New York. Uh, Hello, Mariana. Thank you for being here with us today. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, quick introduction. Mariana is the historian of architecture and urbanism and is the editor-in-chief of Urban Omnibus. Uh, thank you again and welcome to the show. Before we begin, could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, so, as, as you said, I'm a historian of architecture and urbanism, and I, I feel like it's helpful to say um, I'm not I'm not an architect. Um, I came into the field from uh, originally an interest in film and photography and how we understand urban space. And um, after an experience um, working in an architecture firm, got really interested in in the, the makings of the, the built environment themselves. And I've been really interested ever since in, in the interplay between the two, how the work of designers is understood out in the real world um, and and how in their work they they understand the larger social forces that they're working in um, so I um, I went on to to study the history of, of architecture and urbanism and have um, taught both architecture students and um, and liberal arts students uh, and and currently edit a publication, Urban Omnibus, that, that looks at the, the making of the city from, from a vast number of disciplinary perspectives and across an expanded field of, of actors who really participate in, in the making of the city. So that's where I'm coming from. Great. Thank you very much. And so with that, we'll just kind of dive right into the book. So first of all, you know, the idea of public space and even New York City are both very broad topics, but the book is pretty specific. And so, you know, focuses on Mayor Lindsay's New York City. And so we'll start with what makes that period worth examining over maybe some of the other mayors. Um, sure. So I think um, a couple of different reasons, you know, one is certainly when I, I started this project and, and to this day, um, from the perspective of the the form of the city and the state of, of architecture, it's um, pretty under considered. And in, in terms of um, our, our under, the changing understandings of the city, who it's for, how it's meant to be made was was really a, a pretty important 
turning point, um, especially from the perspective of urbanism. People are, you know, very familiar at this point with the stories of Robert Moses and, and urban renewal um, and the, the post-war liberal interventions in city making that really sought to modernize the city, bringing in, you know, new concepts in architecture and planning simultaneously destroying old neighborhoods and displacing, you know, large, large portions of the population. And, and that's a story that's, that's well, well told and well known now, whether it's a celebration or vilification or further reconsideration of, you know, the uh, motivations and, and results of that period. Um, and there's a little bit of a narrative of, okay, well, these things happened. And then we understood that urban renewal was bad. And that was kind of the end of that. And then things get a little hazy. Um, but but the the period of Lindsay's administration, and he was elected mayor in in 1965, and and serves from 1966 to 1973, um, is a really critical turning point, both in terms of the fortunes and the politics of the city. You know, we um, start at the sort of um, let's say end of the high point maybe of, of the city's kind of post-war prominence um, and come out of that period sort of mired in um, this this moment of, of fiscal crisis, you know, and, and doubts about, you know, what is, um, what is the, the future of the city? Is there one at all? Um, in between, there's some really profound rethinking um, of the city and specifically rethinking how the the role of designers and how the city is, is shaped and who it's made for that's really coming out of the the backlash against urban renewal and the sort of sense of um, we need to do things differently, um, you know, both thinking about the human scale, paying attention to what people really want and need and are asking for, um, and finding a way for, for city government to, um, to, help, to help shape that that development in in a, a different practice. Um, so it's a period um, for a number of different reasons, really rich in, in experimentation. You know, um, Lindsay personally was was interested in in culture and and design and and fairly unusually I'd say for um, for a New York City mayor an American mayor really um, wanted to to work with with designers and 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 let them experiment and try new things and so um, so it's it's a really fertile period um, and it's it's one where where the kind of work that took place the lessons were that were learned were a little bit subtle and not so extraordinarily visible as you might look at um, an earlier period and say behold Lincoln Center you know or behold Central Park um, but but they've been really they're they're there and they they seeded um, a, a great deal of um, of change in in how we approach um, public space in the city. So that's that's a bit of a, a long answer for why I think this period is important. If I can just say you know one other piece of it, especially in this moment, um, the kinds of issues that they're grappling with, you know, the the nature of of democracy and planning and design and in the city are. Um, you know, in, in some ways have not changed so much from that period, um, you know, grappling with these questions of, of participation, um, you know, who, 
who our designer is meant to serve, um, dealing um, with really pressing questions of, of race and discrimination and inclusion. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the issues that um, that they're trying to deal with um, are pretty unresolved today. I would agree. And it's an interesting point you bring up about, you know, this was a very experimental phase. And so I'll kind of, I'll jump right to the end of the book and kind of give it away. You, you bring up the fact that a lot of these projects that we can go into detail had a lasting effect on kind of common design sense and common design principle. But a somewhat sad reality is not a lot of the physical spaces remain as of today. Um, yeah, that's true. So I talk um, a little bit, I think, in, in the first chapter, you know, about what are the sort of spatial politics and, and practices of the administration and, and what are the what are the really lasting physical effects? And so, um, you know, the, the book is is looking at, at open space and the, the primary mode of experimentation really was um, in the city's open spaces. So parks, streets, residential plazas, um, post-industrial waterfronts. Um, and this was about building, but also about much more ephemeral practices, you know, new arts happenings in parks. Even um, I, I talk a little bit about, you know, the, the mayor's own practices, you know, of this is a moment where um, Central Park first gets closed to car traffic for, for bike riding, right? So you have this idea of seeing um, folks and city officials, you know, out there um, on the streets, walking, bike riding. So um, some of it is not actually constructed. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and in this moment of, of some urgency of doing things to demonstrate, you know, this is the city's a desirable place to live. It's a place that um, that is inclusive and that, you know, provides these kinds of amenities for everybody. One of the things about open space is, um, you know, it's pretty quick to, to throw an event um, in a park or even to put up, you know, a, a temporary playground in a vest pocket park in a way that um, doing something about the housing problem, doing something about the, you know, entrenched questions of racial inequality um, take a lot of time. Um, open space is somewhere where you can quite quickly um, make a demonstration that you're making an effort. So, so there's that piece of it, that, that some of it is um, about the immediacy of that, that act and that gesture. And then there's a the second piece of it that um, a lot of these projects are, um, are landscape projects. Um, and um, landscape has um, has a harder time being maintained and endured than than putting up a, a library, let's say, um, or a school building. So, um, so I do, you know, kind of joke if I were to do a kind of walking tour of the the landmarks of the projects that um, that are discussed in the book. There wouldn't be a, a tremendous amount to look at at this point, but at the same time, we would be able to, um, you know, see some sites. And, and trace some of the um, some of the related or kind of legacy sites connected to to some of the projects that I look at. Absolutely, and I'd like to talk about the Vest Pocket Parks. It was a you know, there's an entire chapter kind of dedicated to it. As I said, a lot of these principles have sort of moved forward to be part of the common design language, especially within urban environments. But Vest Pocket Parks, in particular 
you had mentioned it, that there was sort of this experimentation of kind of allowing the community to be much more involved. Whereas I guess before, and even now a common development strategy is somebody comes in and builds something and says, here it is for everyone to use. Whereas these pocket parks not only had the community weigh in on it, they even had some of the children test it. They even had some of the unemployed individuals of that area build it. So much not to say that development isn't powerful, but these pocket parks seem to be one of the more powerful community catalysts and the idea that open space really could spark further engagement from everybody. Um, yeah, for me, um, for me, that's, uh, that's an important story. Also, I think important again in, um, in picking up a, a history that's, that's really not well, um, well understood when people think about, um, pocket parks, you know, which are textbook example, right. Of, of public space intervention. You know, the, the first thing that people will probably think about is, um, is Paley park in midtown Manhattan. And you frequently see it referred to as the first ever vest pocket park, which, you know, just um, isn't true. Um, and so understanding um, that these things didn't develop, you know, with the idea of a, a polished amenity for for shoppers and, and workers in the central business district. But um, you know, the, the chapter on Best Pocket Parks, it's, um, I call it open spaces interface. And that idea um, of uh, these small scale spaces and the projects of their construction as, as a kind of interface between um, between the city, between planners, the parks department, and and residents and citizens was was really powerful. So um, so there was this I- idea that it came from a few different strands. Um, you know that that at this kind of small scale um, and dealing with the the vast number of, of vacant lots that you just had spreading across. Um, disinvested neighborhoods, you know, where buildings weren't being maintained, they were being demolished and you had these dangerous eyesores, um, that at that, at that scale and, um, you know, with, um, with sort of right, flexible, temporary design, you could really find a way for, for folks to, to work together with the city to really, you know, shape the spaces in their own neighborhood. So the idea was um, that these kinds of projects could really be a catalyst for, for larger transformations. Um, and so, um, you know, I write about a f- the first of a couple of these um, projects that were collaborations, um, actually not with the city itself, but with um, uh, landscape architect Paul Friedberg and um, and uh, the um, Pratt Institute Center for Community Improvement, where, you know, as, as you said, um, it really came from a, a neighborhood initiative to um, inventory and catalog and, and look for improvements for, for all the vacant lots in the neighborhood and then um, to work together, um, residents, the designer, students at Pratt to, um, to, to build these into not just, you know, playgrounds for neighborhood kids, but in some cases, um, you know, neighborhood connectors. Um, and, and again, with this idea that these kind of small parks were the start of something bigger, um, not that it was so fabulous in and of itself to, to build a, a tiny park on a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Great point. 
And so, you know, obviously we've been talking a lot about open space and I will say one of the things that did bring me across this book was just like most architects, you know, I had done a lot of reading on the power broker and Robert Moses. Mm -hmm. And to me, this book seemed almost like an unofficial sequel because the reality is most people are aware of the thousands of parks and spaces that were built during that period. But then the question never really comes up. Well, what happened after that? Mm-hmm. especially because as you put it open and you say it in the book that open design is not simply a big open space, you know, especially, you know, the modernist architects had many of those high rise towers with big open parks, but the sad reality is those were not open spaces for the community to be used. I believe you say something that over 50,000 foot of chain link fence was ordered every year to kind of keep people from touching those green spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering if you could, you know, it's like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. And so it's an interesting point. I was wondering if you could speak a little further on. The reality is that green open space is not anything new, but the experimentation of the open spaces, especially focused on in this book, are kind of a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's about it's about the the function that these spaces are supposed to fulfill. So yeah, I think when um, you bring up the the chain link fen- fence question, um, the book starts looking at some interventions in the landscapes of the city's public housing development. So here you have the absolutely classic um, tower in the park, right? That has vast amounts of open space. It's been designed for a particular function, and that function is to provide light and air, right? It has a a sort of public health um, function and and what you what you see um, right is that that is not um, that's not a human use right and so there's all kinds of, of conflict that develops as soon as these um, these developments are finished right where it's like look here's all this lawn um, and it's literally got a, a keep out sign on it so what is that tell um, residents about where they're living and their sort of claims on that space. Um, what does that mean about, you know, what what the spaces, you know, whether it's it's of the Jacob Reese's houses or, or more broadly are, are meant to, to be for. So this this idea of um, of just use that I talk about, right? You know, about the the functions of space and and what are they to be used for um, really shifts at this time. And there's really this emphasis on, um, well, it's not just about, you know, this sort of strictly functionalist, you know, people, um, and you talk about, you know, yes, that Robert Moses perspective of, you know, well, the masses need to be um, clothed and fed and, and housed and have access to air, right? That it's not just about, um, you know, providing those kind of broad strokes necessities, but accounting for um, those kind of human and emotional and, and developmental needs that really get foregrounded at this moment, especially by designers working in open space, right? And it's coming from um, coming from, you know, ideas in, in psychology that are popularized at the time, you know, about um, people need to have meaningful experiences. They need to feel, you know, secure um, in their spaces. Children, especially in their development, you know, need to have access to a range of, of different experiences and the ability to sort of control um, their actions and their spaces and their pathways through it and and that um, these kind of small forms of, of agency in the environment, um, you know, might not 
be equivalent to, but at least stand for the idea of having a bigger say and degree of control over your life in the urban environment more generally. So there's really an emphasis, even um, when you when you look at some of the um, the the designs, um, like. Like as I as I start in a way as a kind of model for for the philosophy of this moment and many of the projects that come afterwards, um, Paul Friedberg's redesign of of the plaza of the Jacob Rees House is on the Lower East Side, right from this kind of vast fenced in lawn that you can't use to this series of of outdoor rooms and especially this adventure playground that's um, you know that's that's like nothing folks um, in, in the city or the country have really seen before, that it's, that it's all about that kind of free use, right? That people are not going to be told, you know, stay on this path, um, you know, sit here, um, do this, don't go there, but that it's kind of a, a terrain where um, you kind of have the, the agency to do what you want, including, you know, having fun, um, and so that's, you know, part of the, the spirit of, of the period too. Absolutely. And you had mentioned the adventure parks, you know, which very simply put are much different. And I will say even today, even newer playgrounds still have that method of, you know, fixed play activity or toy was centered with kind of nothing around it. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of the interactable, the interactive, uh, you know, adventure park seemed novel then. It still seems novel now, but it's interesting because it was mentioned that that's somewhat of a North American thing. Whereas, you know, across the, you know, across the world, most countries do, and I believe it was in Finland, I believe, or Norway, it's, they call them junk playgrounds, (laughs) the literal idea of using salvaged materials to let children crawl all over and play. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think one important thing um, first to mention that comes out of this, right, is that none of this stuff um, is sort of happening in a vacuum. And you brought up, well, you know, we think we we understand the story of New York City and its built environment pretty well, um, and um, and we we do. And um, one of the things because we think we know it so well is tend to kind of see it a little bit hermetically and not, you know, as absolutely and shaping what's going on elsewhere. So, um, so there's this, this tradition of, of adventure playgrounds that actually start in, um, in Denmark and then are popularized in the UK after world war two as this idea that, you know, again, what can we do with these kind of, you know, bombed out lots. And one thing you can do is turn them into playgrounds and, there, it was really about, you know, again, not even the, the design, but the use, like you just have a lot of stuff um, and a playground, right. you know, kind of watcher play coordinator and kids would just build things themselves. Like they'd literally be out there with, you know, hammers and rusty, you know, nails and, <laughs> and building that. That would never fly in the U.S., um, even in this moment. Right. So, so, the, um, so the North American adaptation of the Adventure Playground. Um, you know, is maintaining more in the kind of freedom of of movement across the space and, and different kinds of experiences and um, especially the sort of even modeling of this little microcosm of the, the city that kids can, um, you know, can uh, scamper about and, and climb and, um, and sort of shape according to their imaginations really explicitly in contrast, as you said, right, to that, that super um, functionalist right. idea, again, of playground equipment, 
you know, that's all about here's your slide, here are your swings. Um, <laughs> you know, you you hear the landscape architects of the period, right, really explicitly um, speaking against this idea of, you know, you have to go, you wait in line, it's your turn, you do the thing, you wait in line again. Um, and so, you know, again, in, in contrast to that idea, you know, of the playground is microcosm of the city is the site of alienation, right? Where like all you can do is kind of go through these sterile environments and like do the basic things. Um, you know, here are these, here are these great spaces where um, you can explore um, and move things around right. and um, imagine different things. Right. Um, and, um, and yeah, you know, as you said, this is a case where a lot of those for, um, for a number of different reasons, including, you know, our um, low tolerance for, for risk and um, litigious society don't exist, <laughs> although some um, have been, you know, adapted and maintained. Um, and it's, you know, there have been some impulses, I think, in, in more recent years to sort of bring those back in, in different ways. Uh, but, but it's still not what we tend to see when it comes to, you know, equipment for right, not children's environments. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and thank you very much for that. And so as we kind of come to a close, we've been talking very much about, you know, parks, whether they be big, small, and, you know, even playgrounds, which are kind of smaller parks. But, you know, they're kind of the reality of, you know, especially in New York City or any environment, a large kind of chunk of someone's outdoor activity or social interaction might not be happening in a dedicated green space. It might be happening on the street. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, you 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 have an entire chapter kind of dedicated to the interaction on the street. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk about a little bit how, because, you know, Lindsay and his administration didn't just focus on green space. They did spend some energy on the actual streetscape itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that's um, that's a, a super important part of this story. Um, and I'll, I'll backtrack there a little bit to say, you know, um, I, I make this, um, you know, big and um, one could um, certainly debate claim about, you know, the idea of public space as a sort of concept being um, invented in this period. And, and part of that is um, moving from this um, very sort of typological idea of, you know, we have different kinds of um, spaces, right? Like we have public parks and we have playgrounds and we have mm-hmm. beaches, you know, and we have sidewalks, um, that all of these different spaces start um, coming under um, the this uh, sort of shared understanding and, and consideration as as this thing called public space with, with you know, particular functions in the city at this time, so that it's not uh, a sort of, mm. it's not a separate issue, right, to say, well, you know, we're going to like write a book about playgrounds or we're going to write a book about, about streets, but it's really the whole continuum. Um, <laughs> And so the street, the street is really, really fundamental in this, um, in this period. And this is one where, um, you can certainly say, well, um, you know, we can't see that now and, um, you can't, um, see the results of what happened then, but you can certainly see them today. And in, in the last 10 years, in terms of a, a return, um, to thinking about, um, 
the the street and and the sidewalk, right? Not just as um, sort of vehicle pathway, but integration mm-hmm. with um, with with plazas and um, you know increasing pedestrianization, um, which was which was a, a big sort of incomplete project um, at the time. And so what what you have, and that's kind of a, a complex story, is a, a number of different things sort of intersect, which are um, a growing environmental awareness and concern with air pollution, you know, which until quite recently in this moment hadn't even been associated with vehicles. You know, the issue was, um, was industry. um, And that's, you know, completely connected to questions about the sort of future livability of the city, right? If, if, you know, like the air is, is gross, what are we doing with these cars? Um, you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, issues of, of congestion and sort of speed of movement and desirability, you know, of, of office districts um, and, you know, in the, in the city's desire to, to redevelop, um, as I look at, you know, especially parts of, of West Midtown from industrial to, um, to office uses. And then you have the, the whole sort of um, political redefinition of the street in this period. Right. When you're seeing um, so much protest activity, the street so much as a sort of place for um, for people to be out, you know, together as citizens together in solidarity or making, um, you know, claims against the state. So so all of these things sort of come together in these in these funny ways, you know, um, to to mm-hmm. really kind of challenge what does the, the street mean in terms of urbanity and in terms of a kind of site where where people um act and feel themselves as, as citizens. So, um, so I sort of look at how the city kind of capitalized on this confluence of, of feelings and needs um, to try to um, reimagine, especially midtown street networks um, as um, things, you know, that today would seem extremely familiar and um, best or ideal practices, pedestrianizing midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Sorry, I've lost my. I've it's lost funny my you mentioned things bit. that would. <laughs> oh, that's all right. It's funny you mentioned how things are familiar. You know, and I'm sure anyone listening to this didn't bat an eye at the idea that you know streets shouldn't just be for cars. People should also use streets. I'm sure that's that doesn't seem very novel now. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually talked about you even show examples how is you know this book isn't written that long ago, but people were complaining when they closed the street because people were drinking coffee too close to a road or. Mm-hmm. teenagers were gathering where adults are mm-hmm. so you know we might think that's novel but it's interesting to see that not too long ago that was seen as this very foreign concept but yeah it was seen as as foreign and and as threatening and in part because a, a big piece of what all of these interventions are, are doing right is trying to expand the the public of the city's public space so again coming back to that right. contrast with the earlier moment as you said you know we might be familiar with all of these interventions you know um that we associate with robert moses new um parks and playgrounds and so we have mm-hmm. to remember that um those were huge expansions of the public realm but they weren't for everybody right um and especially they weren't you know for um the city's um you know growing um and excluded from so many trappings of citizenship um black and and puerto rican residents and a a big part of the lot of the projects um that 
that we're looking at here in the 60s and 70s are about really expanding that public so that it's not just, you know, um, it's not just a, a white public. And beyond that, in, in this moment, you know, not just of um, demands by social movements, but also, you know, youth culture, the counterculture, challenging ideas of what kind of use and behavior are appropriate, right? So people might want to be, you know, more relaxed and do things that were um, not considered um, appropriate, you know, by a kind of more state or, or conservative um, culture. So you see a lot of that clash. I think you're referring to um, one of, um, one of my favorite pieces of research in this book is um, the city did all these experiments in temporarily closing streets on Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue with the idea right. that it would be made permanent. Um, and this was a big deal. So you go to the archives and you just find volumes and volumes of letters that people personally wrote to the mayor, um, you know, either to be like, mm -hmm. thank you, this is so incredible, um, all caught up in this kind of language and thinking about what that means for like their understanding of how the city lets them be free and how they're citizens and what kind of power the people have and the people complaining. Um, and, and a big piece right. of those complaints are seeing, you know, long haired, disrespectful hippie youth, you know, out <laughs> on the street like that's appropriate or um what at this time ultimately shuts down um in part plans for more permanent street closings um are uh businesses right who are really worried about the quote-unquote you know wrong element um you know taking over the the street um and scaring off you know the um the more affluent or, or normative buyers so um so there's both this right. kind of sense of here are these you know spaces for um for community and for people to go together uh, to be together but also a, a lot of um uh, fear and anger and hatred and contestation about you know who who, um, whose streets are they, you know, and, and what kind of behavior is appropriate and, and who has a right to be present. Absolutely. And it, it could be an entire podcast between you guys separately that there's quite a bit of parallel between that and kind of what's been going on this year. So it, it, whether it was accident at the timing of reading, it was very interesting on that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's funny because these projects take, um, you know, take forever. And so, um, it was both impossible to predict, um, neither when, um, the book itself <laughs> was actually being completed a year ago or when I started this project much, much earlier that we'd right. be where we are at the moment that it comes out. And at the same time, not, um, not surprising in that, you know, we're talking about a whole bunch of, um, questions that are um that are are still entirely unresolved so i think you know we've been seeing again both the kind of um uh absolutely you know power that these spaces have in terms of people's ability to um you know, gather protests and really, you know, contest claims to who's the city built for, um, you know, whose whose rights are important. Um, and and also, I think similarly in this moment, you know, between um, 
between the kind of efflorescence of the Black Lives Matter movement, but also um, COVID, you know, mm. concerns again about um, the desirability Absolutely. of city living and density and, and what kind of, you know, the kind of rush to make interventions to, again, you know, um, have sidewalk cafes, get people out and, and dining and, and those kind of strategies that are, you know, out of this um, sense of urgency to uh, make plain um, the, the desirability and, um, and sort of affability of, of urban living. So there are many, um, many very direct parallels. And yet, of course, it's, it's a different historical moment. Um, but not for that, I think, are there not a lot of lessons that, that are still to be learned from this earlier moment um, so that we don't sort of repeat the same pattern again? Absolutely. And uh, so again, I want to thank you again for uh, speaking with me. Uh, as I said, the book is The Invention of Public Space. And so before we go, I was wondering, you know, as you had said, you know, this project kind of wrapped up a little while ago. So what have you been kind of keeping yourself busy with since then amidst all this chaos? Um, well, I, a, a couple of things, um, you know, one is always keeping my eye on the contemporary state of, of city making in, in New York and urban omnibus. Um, yes. and then the second, which is, you know, slow moving is, um, you know, as, as often happens with these projects, um, what for me is, you know, we didn't talk about the um, the last um, chapter of the book, which is really sort of shifting to the scale of, of environment and, and what does it mean to sort of start thinking That's about right. reoccupying and, and remediating, um, you know, the city's waterfronts in these post-industrial environments. And there are um, some really, really interesting uh, projects at that time, you know, again, trying to both combine um, environmental remediation, looking at, at polluted water, at, at disuse land and and um providing access to and, and new kinds of access to open space and so um for me all of those environmental questions have really opened up a, a kind of next and new avenue of, of research really looking at that sort of larger scale of environments that similarly you know sort of draw us together um in mutually intertwined fates and um and what it means to to design those so i've been um increasingly interested in in those questions of the sort of intersection of um of city making and, and remediation and and a larger project looking at um the the intersections of um, the production of, of waste and the production of space in the metropolitan environment. So sort of um, moving, moving further up in, in scale um, and across time is, is where things are headed. Very interesting. I can't wait to read or see what's next. Me neither. Uh, It'll thank be you a again while. for uh, speaking with me. <laughs> thank you. This was, this was really a pleasure. Uh, Oh, thank you. My pleasure is all mine. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you and have a great day.